You are listening to the Tech Chef Podcast. This is episode number 55, June 14th, 2022. This is Al Kempo, father and creator of the originator of the Tech Chef. Off-premise strategy, business continuity. How about a taste test of restaurant technology? strangers and welcome back for another episode of the tech chef this is your host skip kimple and every week it is my goal to bring you the latest and greatest restaurant hotel and hospitality technology insights from thought leaders across these industry segments i do have to apologize as this is normally a weekly show but there have been so many industry shows lately that i have had to travel quite extensively which caused me to miss a few weeks in between having said that We are back on track again with a bunch of great new episodes in the can already and ready to go. If this is your first time listening, make sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode. I saw many of you at the NRA show and it was so good to see this show come back in such a strong way. The amount of technology that was present was also quite impressive. Unfortunately, out of all the buildings that the show was located, I didn't really get outside of the tech pavilion area. I know I missed a lot, but then again, I was really there for the technology. Today is a special episode as this Sunday is Father's Day. I am fortunate enough to still be able to pick up the phone and talk to my dad whenever I want to and ask him business advice as he has had a successful 45 years in the workforce and always has great insight for me. Recently, I was visiting Wisconsin and I came up with the idea to bring him on the show to talk about what it was like before technology and the transition into it over those many decades. While you are not going to hear any hospitality technology talk in the show, my father is a great storyteller and he walks us through his career, the patents he received, and being an eyewitness to the infancy stages of technology as we know it today. How this show will relate to you is we will talk about forward-thinking thought leadership, the importance of continuing to learn and educate yourself along the way, and, most importantly, how to dress to impress. I can't wait to share this episode with you as it is near and dear to me, but also gives you a good insight into the DNA that makes me who I am today. Mr. Kimple, thank you for joining me today for this very special Father's Day episode. I can't think of a better person to have on this show than the person that taught me my values and the importance of professionalism in the business world. To start with, I am sure most people in my listening audience do not know your name because you have never been in the hospitality industry. However, what I'd like you to do is tell the listeners a little bit about your background and all the accomplishments you've achieved over the past 81 years. Well, those are pretty extensive, so that would be a very long conversation. So we'll have <laughs> to try to figure out how to do this a little bit more expediently. 
Well, let's let's talk about how you how you began and what what industry was it in that you first joined? I started the industry fresh out of high school, and I became a draftsman in the machine tool industry. Because it was my cup of tea, became my livelihood for the rest of my career. Uh, I'm mechanically inclined, and I enjoyed what I was doing, and I would design um, stations and so forth for, for machine tool industry. I did that for 14 years. What, what company was that? The company was Grinley Brothers and Company in Rockford, Illinois. And that's where you grew up, correct? That's where I grew up. I worked there for about five years, and then it went into what was called job shopping. Because of my quality of ability to design and detail, uh, and better than average, I would say, and I'm not sounding to brag, but it was the, the fact that I could do this very efficiently and very good, good I w- became um, a contracting engineer. Once I completed about five years of that work, moved on to a company in Madison, Wisconsin called Gischelt Machine Company. Uh, we made the machinery that uh, was put on board ships where they had their own shops to make parts if something broke down on the ships. We made uh, tools that uh, produced the cannons for ships. We um, produced the first ever vertical machine tool line to machine the disc brakes. All of the automobiles, that was General Motors, Ford, American Motors, purchased our equipment to produce the uh, disc brakes. And uh, that was a very interesting project. I was transferred to Yeoman Engineering. That was also um, a great opportunity. There we manufactured. We, we, I went with the product that I had been working on, and we continued to make equipment to produce disc brakes. But we, I made the, the decision that it would be appropriate if I would get more involved with the product that they were producing. Their product was to produce uh, automatic assembly machinery. And uh, this is an exciting field. Uh, everything is done at very high speed. And we were one of the best. Um, and I continued to grow in my capability. Uh, I became an applications engineer. And once we sold a piece of machinery after we the necessary paperwork to uh, introduce the customer, I would do sketches of the things that were needed to produce this product. It was all novel and new. We then would go down back to the engineering department and actually become the project manager. After five years, um, I then took a job in Madison, Wisconsin, with an international company called Warman Engineering. I started as the engineer, and uh, I wore many hats. It was a small company. The company was headquartered in Sydney, Australia. Over the course of time of working for them, I actually finished my career with them. I had a 28-year career with them. Oh, and because of Warman International, um, that gave us the opportunity to travel around the world as well. Yes. Yes, we had pumps in over 100 countries of the world. We had plants producing woman pump parts in all English-speaking countries. I was uh, uh, the engineer of everything. I did product design. I did uh, 
manufacturing design, I did product and mold design, casting and mold design. We made rubber parts for our pumps, and these were large pumps. We had pumps that were producing 20,000 gallons a minute. So, yeah, these were slurry pumps. Slurry being a liquid that contained solid. Uh, as time went on, and we were under pressure from Australia to increase our sales, uh, the decision was made uh, uh, if a person is buying a pump in slurry, they also have problems where they need valves. They need at least two valves. They need a valve for the suction and a valve for the discharge. So I was put into the task of researching and uh, deciding, uh, determining how to produce a valve that would be part of our sales opportunity. I did that, and as a result, I received a patent. And over the course of my career, I received five U.S. patents relative to the design of slurry valves. So these, these uh, so you're an expert in the valve area, and you created all these patents. But these pumps were, they were massive. Yes, the pumps were massive. One interesting project where we hydraulically mine coal from 1,000 feet below the surface. We had a series. We had our pumps in series. Uh, there were seven pumps underground, uh, lifting the lifting coal up to four inches in diameter. The coal would be mined and put into a uh, storage container, and then it would be pumped, and it would be pumped vertically to the surface. Once it was at the surface, it would then be horizontally pumped over a mountain and to awaiting railroad cars. And uh, that project was a huge success. I, re- I remember growing up you had... There was a um, a nut that would screw onto like yes. a, a bolt. It was it was huge. It sat as a like a book holder in my room. It was yes. so big. Yes, um, the this pump uh, when you put the two halves together and you pressurized it to a thousand psi, there was like a million pounds of pressure inside trying to tear that pump apart. We did have to work on the castings to make sure that they were strong enough to restrain. There's deformation that takes place as the the pump is pressurized. It it has a tendency, especially if it's made out of rubber, it would turn into a balloon. But in this case, it it expanded. It, It was expanding up to three quarters of an inch. And so we had to redo, we had to do more work on the castings, make them stiffer. And we got that down to something far less. And uh, we, every pump was tested. Uh, and we made all of the parts in the United States, even though our headquarters was in Australia. Our, our owner, founder, was committed to the fact that we would build the market in the United States producing product that we could remake or make in the United States. Very important to him. Uh, because obviously shipping things from Australia could have its challenges. To avoid that sort of thing, we made as much and anything that we sold in America, we built in America. So my listening audience is more technology based, and they're kind of listening to this, going, okay. "Okay, why? Why are we? Why is Skip bringing on his dad?" First of all, it's the Father's Day episode for one. Um, but there's two very important aspects I want to talk about during this. Yeah. 
while you're at Warman, and I'm going back to the early 1980s. Yes, I got it. Okay, yeah. your company um, had some very forward-thinking thought leaders in that in that company. Where one day you walked home with an IBM PC Junior. I think that was like 1984. That's right. That's right. It was 1984. My boss and I, and he was a older gentleman than I. He had been a navigator in the Second World War. He and I decided to computerize with a PC Junior the ability to do bearing calculations on the pumps. I brought my, my computer home and... Um, my son Skip took to that like a duck takes to water. That would be me. <laughs> <laughs> he was able to teach himself basic, and um, he was uh, teaching everybody else how to use a computer by that time. Remember, we had Lotus 1-2-3 back then. We had Lotus 1-2-3. Long before Excel. Yes, it was a, <laughs> a, a, a very helpful tool for budgeting. Yes. And... Um, I had a budget. I had the engineer. By this time, I had an engineering staff. I also had the quality control staff. I was responsible for uh, OSHA compliance and safety. So I had a lot of hats that I was wearing. About this time, though, you started to see the transition from draftsmanship yes. into CAD systems. Yes, we started to see the beginning of uh, computers being used to do drafting. And we started with CAD systems, computer-aided design. Uh, the early stages were, um, were quite simple and quite um, readily available. You could be taught to do use this system in a couple of weeks and... Uh, we started to do that. And then personal computers started to appear. The sales department were using them. And my boss had come from the sales department. And I asked, I said, you know, I think I can see the opportunity for a computer in engineering. And he says, well, what are you going to use that for? <laughs> and I said, well, I can think of a lot of things that I can use that for. I mean, it is particularly good as a math tool and... Uh, uh, keeping records on patents and uh, so on and so forth. Well, it, it wasn't an immediate success, but eventually I got a computer. There, there was a decision made that we could maybe save some money in our business by not having everybody travel to Australia and the UK and Canada and Mexico. I remember this. I remember going to your office as a kid. You had the first video conference. Video system. conference. Yes. You. I've and, I had never seen that before. And when um, we'd have a video conference, they would come to my office uh, and we'd have everybody there and we would, we would have a video conference. Uh, salespeople didn't like it. They preferred to travel. Of course, uh, that was just their thing. But it, for engineering, we felt it was a valuable savings and tool. So I had one of the pioneer systems for that. The only problem for that for me was is that because we were a true international company, it, made, it meant conferences all hours of the day. Well, that, uh, that brings up my next point. Okay. And you really grew up in that era before cell phones, before email. You had this work-life balance that when you finished work at 5 o'clock or whatever time it was, 
you were not inundated with continuous work like individuals are today. No. And if you look at today's society and today's workers versus when, when you were working, I think that work-life balance is so important, and it's, it's really hard to separate today. Do you agree? Yes, I agree, and I, I must not overlook the fact of the cell phone. The cell phone is a tremendous tool that uh, is available to everybody today. I remember making trips overseas and having difficulty communicating back with the office in Madison uh, simply because of the time zones. Uh, you know, the time would be such that you would be busy at work in, in, in England and, and that would be good till about noon. If you didn't get your work done by noon, you were done until the next day. You could fax. Mm -hmm. We had fax, but communications were slowed by the fact that you could not communicate uh, without cell phones. However, that has become, it's turned a little negative in today's day because you've seen me. I've, I've, been, yeah. I've spent time with you, and you see exactly. me. It is nonstop communication because well, that, that of the is, cell phone. That is true, and it's, it becomes, uh, in my opinion, it's stressful. We have a tendency to be over-communicated. Yes. So another area I want to dig into, and a lot of people are going to laugh about this, especially the ones that know me. Uh, you always installed good dress codes um, and in me, and this has continued to follow me to this day. I'm always considered one of the best-dressed guys at the office, or you know, I, I'm the guy that's known wearing a tie and a sports jacket. Nobody else is wearing a tie. Um, but you kind of did the same thing growing up too, and it did make a difference for you, didn't it? Now that's that's interesting because it, that's that's true. From the very start, when I started as a draftsman, I wore a white shirt and tie. I didn't wear a sport coat, but I wore a white shirt and tie. Nobody else did. And by the time I left there five years later, everybody's wearing white shirts and ties. <laughs> and that... that Tradition kind of followed me wherever I went. I was always, uh, appearance I felt was important. If you want to be successful, you have to look successful. Well, the old saying, you only have one chance to make a first impression. Yes, yes, and, and it, it worked for me. <laughs> I felt it worked for me, and uh, I'm hoping that I'm remembered I was a best dresser. <laughs> <laughs> I think you I think they already think that. Uh, also, another piece I want to dig into it is Midwestern work ethics. Yes. Um, growing up in Wisconsin and after traveling the country and actually traveling the world, I do see a difference in the work ethics of individuals from the Midwest. Do you also feel the same way? I certainly do. I think that we are taught from, from our, we're taught from our youth uh, that it was important uh, to find a job get as good a job as you could, get one with good insurance. Uh, Those were just values that we were taught. And, um, and to work every day. Now, I, I can actually stay right now that I have, in a 45-year career, you can probably count the days of which I miss work because I was sick on one hand. Wow. Um, I would sometimes go to work when I wasn't feeling all that great, but... I'm not advocating that people do that, but that's the way my ethic was. I was taught that, and uh, 
it's and I'm, I was very fortunate that in my life I didn't have any setbacks of health issues that kept me from being able to go to work because I was there. Throughout my career, as I've interviewed people, if if they are from the Midwest, I do give them a little advantage, quite honestly, because I know deep down they are going to work harder and longer than the other person that that's up against them. By and large, I think that's a fact. I just, you know, we, we, people would get into trouble uh, at work if they were anything less. Um, weren't putting in a, a true day's work if they were finding time to do things other than what they were supposed to be doing. I, I, I remember that when cell phones came alive and it became, this is late in my career, but it became that everybody had a cell phone. And uh, we were starting to weigh the, the subject of, can we have people talking on their cell phones when they're supposed to be working? <laughs> <laughs> uh, because the conversations were usually something, anything but work-related. And uh, so that was, it was a discussion. Um, I can't imagine how that's done today. Now, in, in today's marketplace, uh, in the business environment, I've been in many work environments where there are no there are no desk phones. Everybody just has their cell phone. Yeah. And that's how you communicate. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. What advice do you have for any business professional out there that is looking to make a difference in their career? And after all of these years that you have been working, what do you feel are some of the most important qualities to be successful in the business world? One of the things that I did, and I think is important in a career, is to keep track of what's available out there in the form of educational uh, steps. What might I do where I will pick up uh, something job-related that I can use in my career? And that's something I did throughout. From the very beginning, I was always taking a course somewhere, someplace, to... Uh, make myself more valuable and be more educated on what I was doing. Well, I remember even when you're doing um, work on the pumps, you took courses in, in, um, in rubber technology. A nine-week nine course in rubber technology at Milwaukee School of Engineering. Very important, very valuable, but that was, that was definitely job-related. And one thing watching me growing up, I'm sure you saw that from certainly from the computer side, I would open up a computer book and I would just read for read it from cover to cover, nonstop. Yeah, Skip could read a a, a manual like it was a textbook. <laughs> but personally, I wasn't capable of doing that. I would put the textbook in the drawer, and then when I got into a problem, I'd get the textbook out and figure out how to solve the problem. But or or you just ask me. Or would ask Skip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one last thing I remember. Gosh, this is this is ancient technology too. Um, you had this calculator. Um, oh yeah, it was a Hewlett Packard calculator. It was that a Hewlett Packard calculator. I still have it. I don't know where it's at, but it had built into the top of it. It had a head in which you could insert discs with engineering and, formula. And when I say when he says discs, they were like little uh, magnetic strips. Uh, strips, you magnetic would, strips. Yeah. You'd feed it in on one side, it would feed through, and it had data written on those strips. The, those strips had data on each size pump. It had been considered in that strip. It had been programmed 
with the bearing sizes, and uh, it would predict what the bearing life would be. And we'd have to have a certain amount of bearing life before we'd accept the application uh, and sell it. We, we wanted to make sure that it was going to be a safe application. So I'm going to admit something right now I probably shouldn't admit, but these strips were programmable. So I remember taking your calculator to school sometimes with pre-programmed algorithms for algebra or something like that where nobody had no idea what this device was, but I was actually able to actually process uh, calculations automatically by using these strips. So that was fascinating. This is technology that we started with in 1975. Yeah. I mean, it's it's actually fascinating. That that device is probably worth something today, now that I think about it. I have it someplace. (laughs) Actually, I saw it upstairs the other day. Dad, thank you so much for doing something today that you were not expecting to do, but uh, given the fact that I had some time to spend with you and I I wanted to hone in on your background, your expertise, and really your decades of business acumen that I they have not only observed, but followed throughout my business career. And thank you for making me who I am today. Well, you're very welcome. I, I've enjoyed it. If you would like to reach out to me or the show, you can do so via everything social at Skip Kimple or everything at Constrata. This includes Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and TikTok. You can always go to the website at skipkimple.com for all the archived shows, including the show notes. And you can also hear these episodes on the Constrata website at constrata.io. And of course, you can always email me at skip.kimple at constrata.io. Next week is going to be a really good show. I have the COO from Flytrex, Ben Tyne, to talk about the revolutionary steps this company is taking to make drone delivery a real thing. Yep, this is the company behind all the recent publicity you have seen, including El Pollo Loco, Papa John's, Brinker, Jersey Mike's, Walmart, and many more. You all know me, This has been one of my passions for quite some time. I see this as a real possibility in the not-so-distant future. Companies like Flytrex are working with the FAA to tweak current drone regulations to allow for a safe, fast, and very cool way to get your next delivery. Sound like fun? Well, you'll have to join me next Tuesday to hear all about it. So until then, stay safe, stay healthy, And stay hungry, my friends.